For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're going to be looking at Romans 5, 1 through 11, which I entitled, The Results of Our Justification. Over the last few weeks, we've been throwing around this term justification, which we'll define here in a minute. But Paul has been sort of expounding upon this. And what we want to do is we want to talk about what that looks like in our lives as Christian believers. So let's begin by looking at Romans 5 verse 1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, he uses the past tense to describe this event where we receive Christ. And at that point, God justifies us because we place our faith in him. And if you were not with us over the last few weeks, we define justification as to render a favorable verdict or to vindicate, to declare one's innocence. And that's exactly what God did when he placed us in Christ, is that he now gives us this status of one who has been declared innocent because of what Jesus did on our behalf. So in addition to giving us eternal life, this actually bestows upon us incredible benefits in this life as well. Why don't we read through the rest of our passage and see what these benefits are? He continues in verse 1, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still yet powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that's the passage we're going to be looking at. And what I want you to sort of train your eyes on are the six bold assertions that Paul makes about people who have experienced God's justification. And we want to go through this as we sort of expound upon this passage. So the first bold assertion that Paul gives to us is that we have peace with God. And, you know, when we talk about this concept of peace, I think mental images pop into our mind. We think about Warring leaders shaking hands. We think about peaceful protests. We think about children playing together and enjoying their time with one another. And even though the biblical concept of peace 
embodies all of those things, I think it goes a few steps further. Biblical peace is actually something that is all-encompassing. In the Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. And it describes the peace that God imparts to us, not only with one another, but with him and the rest of the world in which we live. Jesus says in John 14, verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, but I don't give you peace as the world gives you. So there's something unique, there's something distinct about the peace that God gives to us by comparison to what the world offers or how it defines peace. I love the way that Cornelius Plantinga defines peace. He says, we call it peace, but it means more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. He says, shalom, in other words, is a way, is the way things ought to be. The title of his book is actually not the way things ought to be. And I think that that summarizes our experience. That whether or not we're a Christian, we have this intuitive sense that things are not the way they ought to be or the way they're supposed to be. And so we feel this sense of longing that things could be better. And God says they could be better. And the starting point for God's peace actually starts with our relationship with him. The Bible tells us that because of our wrongdoing, because we have offended God, who is morally perfect by our wrongdoing, that we stand at enmity with him, that there's hostility between us and God. I recall before I met Christ feeling this sense of distance between me and God, and a sense of concern, too, that he was angry at me. And as it turns out, that bears out in true moral guilt, that we stand condemned because of the things that we've done wrong. And yet, God in his love has moved toward us, even though there is hostility. Later, in verse 10, Paul says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? He describes us as his enemies because of the things that we've done wrong. And yet, even though we are God's enemies, he demonstrated his love for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the moment we turn to God with humility when we set aside our hostility and rebellion, that at that moment, God allows us to have peace with him, that we can be reconciled. So therefore, justification and reconciliation always belong together. That forgiveness also contains an element of friendship 
where God wants to move toward us. So that's the first result of our justification is that we have this incredible peace with God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul asserts that we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, which he says in verse 2. This is profound, that we get to gain access to God, the creator of the universe. In other translations, they render the word gained access in Greek, given an introduction. And I like that because it has a touch of formality to it. You know, imagine if you wanted to meet an official. Let's say you wanted to meet the President of the United States, right? You couldn't just waltz into the Oval Office anytime you wanted. You would need an introduction, probably from a cabinet member or maybe one of the President's staff. And so once we've gained that introduction, we then can gain access to him. And likewise, what God says is that because of what Jesus has done, because of our faith in him, we have gained access or we've been given an introduction into God's presence, the creator of the universe. Not only that, he says that we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. So, We can come into God's presence anytime we want. That's like having the President of the United States on speed dial. And that there's an eagerness on his part to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. I'm really stressing about this Verizon phone bill that I need to pay today. Scared that I'm not going to be able to remember. Oh, that's great. Let's talk about that. God's attentive to our needs. He's attentive to our longings, our concerns. No matter how mundane we may feel about it, God cares about that. And that's hard for us to imagine because the God of the universe seems extremely busy that he would want to worry about our affairs here on earth. I love the way that Ephesians 3 verse 12 says, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's, uh, into his presence. We can enter with boldness. And this is partly related to the fact that God says that once we come into a relationship with him, our status changes. We're no longer enemies. We're actually now his children. And for those of you who have children, you know how boldly your children feel like they can access you, right? I mean, I'm sitting there having a conversation with a friend, maybe even a pretty intense conversation, and my four-year-old will just interrupt. You know, he'll jump on my arm, hang on it. He'll say, Daddy, Daddy, look at this. And there's no concern about whether I'm busy or whether I'm talking to someone about something important. All he cares about is, What's on his mind? And yet what's incredible is that God is never too busy to talk to us. I love this clip that I saw on BBC. Scandals happen all the time. The question is, how do democracies respond to those scandals? Uh, And what will it mean for... uh... 
for the wider region. I think one of your children has just walked in. I mean, shift, shifting, shifting sands in the region, do you think relations with the North may change? Um, I would be surprised if they do. The, um, pardon me. My apologies. <laughs> what was this going to be for the region? My apologies. North, uh, Sorry. Um, North Korea, North, uh, South Korea's policy choices on North Korea have been severely limited. You know, that's humorous, but, uh, you know, God never feels that way about us, right? He's never too busy to interact with us. And look at the attitude of the child, though. I mean, those children just burst into the room. We're dancing, they didn't care, you know, dad's giving them the Heisman. <laughs> but that's how God wants us to access him, with boldness, without concern about what he's doing, because God loves us, and that's an amazing benefit that we get. The third bold point that Paul makes here, assertion, is that we rejoice in our hope of the glory of God. And so we get to rejoice in the fact that God is amazing and that we have hope in him. You know, <clears throat> he does, really, there are three ways that we get to see this incredible glory. In Mark 13, verse 26, God says, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You know, one day, even though we get glimpses of God's glory now, that we see a transformed life, that we get to experience God's power surging through us as we step out to serve him, that one day he's actually going to lift the curtain and we're going to be able to see the full glory of God. And that that will happen when Jesus returns with great power and glory. Also, we're told in 1 John 3, verse 2, that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That longing that we have to meet and see our creator face to face will also be accompanied by us being transformed into his likeness. So all of the baggage that we feel, all of the issues that we've been struggling with for decades now, all of that will disappear because God will remake us. He will redeem us. And finally, Paul says that the groaning creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. As we mentioned earlier, we look out into the world and we realize things are not the way they're supposed to be. And there's an inward groaning that we feel awaiting this redemption that God promises. And yet God says that we have hope. You know, when we think about hope, we think of something probably pretty different from what the Bible has in mind. When we think of hope, we think of something that is totally improbable, but that we still believe. You know, I hope the weather forecast is going to be correct this today. And yet, biblical hope actually is a settled assurance 
that God will come through on his promises. And so we have hope of his glorious return. Number four, Paul gives the bold assertion that we also rejoice in our sufferings. You know, if we stopped at his third assertion, that seems pretty idyllic, right? And in a moment's reflection, you realize that justification is not only something that happens in our past, it's something that we experience in our present, but also something that we experience in our future. And so that seems great, but Paul also adds that we rejoice in our sufferings. He says, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he, give, whom he has given us. So look at the stair-step progression that Paul gives to us here. He says, first of all, that we rejoice. And I think it's important for us to explain that when we say rejoice, we're not talking necessarily about feelings of happiness, He doesn't say that we should be happy for our sufferings, but that it's possible to rejoice in the biblical sense. And what he means by that is that when we are encountering suffering, we can trust that even though we are grieving, even though we are struggling, even though we are concerned about all the circumstances that feel like they're pressing in on us, that God is ultimately sovereign and that he is ultimately involved in our lives. And that gives us the ability to rejoice, to have a sense of confidence in his plan for our lives. And he says that we should rejoice in our sufferings. Now, there are a number of sufferings that befall us throughout life. You know, some of us are dealing with debilitating physical ailments. As we age, we see that our bodies are losing its, its vigor. Some of us have chronic illness and pain that we have to manage, and it's difficult. For others, it's witnessing a loved one suffer, watching our spouse, one of our children, one of our siblings, our parents suffer with illness. Maybe watching our child struggle spiritually or emotionally. That can be very painful. In many cases, it's bad circumstances that press in on us from all sides. Sometimes we just feel overwhelmed. You know, I'm in the college ministry and Many, many young couples are having children. And I've got a, few, I've got a couple young children, but I'm, I'm past the phase of having newborn children. And I remember distinctly how difficult that was. And, you know, you see these parents who are struggling. They're overwhelmed. They're trying to follow God. They're trying to provide for their families. And there are all of these circumstances that come into their lives. And some of us feel that way, that there are circumstances that press in on us, a loss of a job, complicating lifestyle that we're in, and that can cause us tremendous pain and agony. 
For some of us, it could be periods of depression and severe anxiety. In some cases, it's debilitating for some of us. C.S. Lewis says, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and also harder to bear. The frequent attempts to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. You know, for some of us, it's relational pain caused by family or friends. Conflict that we're in. Tension that we feel with our spouse or our siblings. And so all of these things can create tremendous pain and suffering in our lives. And it can test our faith. Are we going to respond positively to God by trusting him and rejoicing even though we're suffering? Or are we going to dig in in unbelief and in despair? He says that this produces perseverance. Robert L. Thomas, a commentator, says, this is an aggressive and courageous Christian quality, excluding self-pity even when times are hard. Endurance accepts the seemingly dreary, blind alleys of Christian experience with a spirit of persistent zeal. It rules out discouragement and goes forward no matter how hopeless the situation. Such endurance is possible only when one is inspired by hope and our Lord Jesus Christ. What a rich definition of perseverance. You know, Jesus, when he was given this incredible parable describing our heart attitudes, he says that the soil, which represents someone who's actually receptive to God and what he has to say, is a seed on good soil, which he says stands for those with a noble and great heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. You know, it's easy for us as Western people who are very driven and goal-oriented to sort of skip over the persevering part and look at the persevering a crop. We want results and we want it now. And if we need to persevere, we'll do that to get the fruit that we're looking for. And yet, one of the things that God says is that we should pursue perseverance as an end in itself. That it's not just a means to an end, but it's a quality that God wants to build into our character. You know, so many Christians start off really well. They're excited about God. They want to tell all of their friends about what God has done. There's a glow about them. And then they encounter suffering in their lives. And they feel like the, the wheels are falling off of their walk with God. And then their faith is truly tested. Are they going to persevere or are they going to quit? And sadly, I've seen so many people who started off very strong in the Christian life encounter intense suffering and quit. You know, I think there are a number of attitudes that derail joy in the midst of suffering. I think that one is self-pity, where we wallow in our suffering, in our circumstances. And, you know, a lot of times when we engage in self-pity, it's 
describing when we feel sorry for ourselves because we're not getting what we think we deserve. There's actually a sense of entitlement associated with self-pity. I feel bad because my life ought to be better than it is right now. I feel sorry for myself because of my suffering and my trials because I've lived a really good life for God and I actually deserve better than what he's giving me. And so you can see there's an undercurrent of entitlement in self-pity. It also expresses itself in self-centeredness. You know, when we are sitting there wallowing, focused on ourselves, we're not able to think about other people. We're not able to love other people. And that's because we're looking in on ourselves and our problems instead of trusting that God is going to take care of us, that he is sovereign over all of these circumstances in our lives, and that because he's taking care of that, we can, it releases us to be able to look out to others and, and serve them. You know, self, self-pity makes thanksgiving impossible. Because when we are, are sitting there feeling bad about ourselves, feeling bad about our circumstances, we have these blinders on and we can't see what God has done. You know, William Farley says, self-pity is a vacuum into which gratitude cannot enter. In fact, self-pity and thanksgiving cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. Although thanksgiving is the antidote for this poison, few bound by self-pity will take the foray into expressing thanks for all the blessings they do have. It's easier to remain in the status quo and verbalize the gloom and doom of life's existence. You know, when you're stuck in this trap of self-pity, it's hard to open up your eyes to all the great things God has given to you, all that he has done in your past. Another attitude that derails joy is discouragement. Maybe we feel like every single time we make some progress for God, we encounter a setback, another trial. And we're always, you know, at a point where we feel like, when is the next foot going to land? I think another thing that we sometimes fall into is stoicism. I'm impervious. I'm invulnerable to these feelings of sadness and grief. And so we decide that we're just going to bury those feelings and pretend like we're okay. We're going to be stoic. And yet one of the things that's really interesting is that when you look at the Old Testament character Job, His response to suffering was not stoicism. We're told that he tore his clothes, he poured ashes on his head, and he he cried, he wept out loud because of his suffering. And yet, the author of Job says, in all of these things, Job sinned not. I think it's really easy for us as Christians in our own lives to see us, us suffering and grieving and feel like something's wrong with me. Or to look at another Christian who's suffering and grieving, expressing doubt over things that they're going through and say, the wheels must be falling off of this person's walk. And yet, 
one of the things that God wants us to do is to grieve in the midst of suffering. He doesn't want us to just pretend like nothing's wrong. Really, Stoicism contains two forms. There's either flat-out denial, I'm just going to basically put this out of my head, I'm going to focus on something totally different, or destroying the part of your heart that cares about the thing that's in jeopardy. Where we tell ourselves, I don't really care about that thing, I don't really want that thing. And it's a way to try to create protective layers so that our heart doesn't get broken. The thing with stoicism is that it can get you through things, but the problem is you will lack compassion when encountering others who are facing suffering. You know, the real problem with hardening your heart to suffering and grief is that if you're unable to do it yourself, you won't be able to relate to those who are going through that as well. I think another attitude that derails joy is masochism. Or we tell ourselves, oh, I'm suffering, and that's really a great thing because, you know, Christians should suffer. Or to put it in Descartes' terms, I suffer, therefore I am. I'm special. I'm unique. Nobody understands me. And so some of us feel like it's God's will for us to suffer. And that by doing so, We are showing a Christian virtue by suffering. And yet, God tells us that suffering is a part of the fall. Even though God can use incredible suffering in our lives to change and transform us and the people around us, there will come a day when he will end all suffering. You know, it's interesting that Paul says in Romans 5, verse 3, he doesn't say we rejoice for our suffering. He says that we rejoice in our suffering. In other words, God doesn't want us to revel in our suffering, but he wants us to have the right attitude in the midst of suffering. You see, being a Christian allows you to face reality. It allows you to make sense of what seems like senseless suffering. And that's one of the really unique things that you see about Christian believers who undergo suffering is that they don't have to bury their head in the sand. They don't have to pretend like nothing is wrong. They don't have to distract themselves. Instead, Christians can face suffering knowing that there's hope, knowing that God is intervening in ways that we don't understand. I think another attitude that derails joy is the insistence upon knowing why this happened. I think it's easy for our whys to subtly shift into a how. You know, it's, it's normal, I think, in our experience, whenever we face suffering, to say, why is God letting this happen to me? Why would he allow this senseless suffering to come into my life? And there's a tone of anger that we feel toward God a lot of times when we're suffering. And yet it's easy to say, why did this happen? And then eventually move toward, how did this happen? How could he let this happen to me? How 
could, how could God mess this up when everything was going well in my life? You see the subtle accusation against God's character in that simple change? There's no longer a why, but how did he let that happen? It implies that God is the one who's behind the suffering that we're experiencing. Instead of seeing that he's actually the one who allows it to enter into our lives. I think another thing that happens is that our why may quickly turn into an if. And that's, that's really, I think, a fertile field for God's enemy to launch accusations against us. You know, if only you were more careful, that would have never happened. And he takes it a step further. You're just so reckless. And so he takes a mistake or a character flaw that we have and causes us to think that that embodies who we are. And that drives a wedge deeply between us and God, feeling like we're so flawed, we're so messed up, we've made such a big mistake that we can't even enter into God's presence. And we find ourselves blaming ourselves over the situation that happened. I think it's really interesting when you read through the book of Job to see the, his quest to find out the why. You know, he starts off pretty well where God's enemy comes into Job's life. He takes away everything that matters to Job, his health, his family, all of his belongings. And when his comforters come and hang out with him, they introduce this question. What do you think you did that caused God to do this to you? And Job attaches himself to that thought. And for a large section of the book of Job, Job is talking about, if, if, if only I could find a way to have an audience with the God of the universe, I can explain to him that he's made a huge mistake. He's got the wrong guy. And finally, God shows up at the end of the book of Job in a whirlwind. And he says, you know what? You've been asking questions about me and my character. Let me ask you a few questions and see how, whether you can answer them. And he asks him, he says, have you ever seen the depth of the sea? He's like, oh, no. Have you ever seen a snow leopard on a snow-capped mountain? He's like, I've never even seen snow. And so he asks him this list of questions and finally Job comes to a conclusion. God is incredibly powerful and knowledgeable. And he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. He was satisfied with actually coming into God's presence. And you know the really interesting thing? is that Job never finds out why. He's satisfied with having an encounter with the God of the universe. And see, that's the way that God operates. He doesn't always tell us why we're suffering, but he wants us to be satisfied with him. Or to put it another way, you know, God's answer to our why is not something, it's someone. I remember uh, talking to a friend who was in my home church many years ago, and he was 22 or 23 years old, and he was 
dying of cancer. And um, I remember visiting him in the hospital of the James and um, eager to, to express this new insight that I learned about the book of Job. And I remember explaining it to him. I said, you know, God asks him all of these questions at the end of Job and Job concludes at the end, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. And my eyes have, have heard, or my, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And you know what? And he just cut me off right there. He said, and Job never got an answer to his why. He wrestled through that. Days later, he passed away. And I'm certain that when he entered into God's presence, the question of why was just irrelevant. You see, God often doesn't give us an answer because it's beyond our ability to grasp the full picture. We're too limited. We, we can't handle that information. I gave this illustration a while back, but you know, my son, Julius, and I, we get weekly time together. And uh, what I used to do several years ago was we would go down to the campus McDonald's and we would get a $1 parfait. And then we would walk around campus and then go home. And so that was our routine. We did it every single week. And I remember the first time we went, I was really trying to get him excited about this. I said, Julius. We're going to this place called McDonald's. He's like, who's old McDonald? I said, no, 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 this is McDonald's. And he said, well, what is McDonald's? I said, well, it's a, it's a franchise that is largely responsible for adult obesity. <laughs> and he said, what's obesity? I said, okay. Let's, let's just get there, and I'll show you, and you'll know, okay? And so on the car ride, he was asking me all these questions. You know, how, when are we going to get there? How much is this going to cost? What's a parfait? And finally, I said, look, Julius, I said, do you trust me? He's like, yeah. Do you trust that I'm going to give you good things? He's like, yeah. I said, so then why don't you just sit in the back seat, and when we get there, you'll know if it's a good thing. And so in the same way, you know, when we are preoccupied with the question of why, God often, often doesn't answer that because he knows that our minds are not capable of grasping the answer. Really, the most important thing is that God knows the direction this is heading. He knows where your suffering is heading and what results can come out of that. He also says that perseverance produces character. You know, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of prayer, no, ma no matter uh, how much time we spend with other Christians serving and engaging, that's never going to transform our character. The only way that God does that is he allows trials and suffering to enter into our lives. And a lot of times, we look pretty good on the outside, but the moment we encounter suffering or trials, it exposes layers of problems in our life. And so God can transform us through our suffering. 
And he says, character produces hope. And you know, this hope really is that God can take even the worst tragedy and use it for his redemptive purposes. You know, it's hard for us sometimes, especially when we're suffering, to think, how could God ever use something like this for good? And yet, when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the cauldron, it's hard for us to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. And yet, what happens is, years, decades later, we get a fuller picture of what God has done. And I think we're going to be surprised when we enter into eternity to see all that God has done through our suffering and trials. Proof that God can use even the worst suffering for our good is demonstrated in the cross. I'm certain that, you know, as the disciples were standing at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die, this agonizing death, they were thinking to themselves, why did God let this happen? How could he let this happen? And yet what they didn't realize was God was going to use that act of suffering as the greatest act of redemption the world has ever seen. And so if God can use something like that, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he most certainly can use the suffering in your life for redemptive purposes. Also, God can multiply spiritual life through suffering and trial. I love that Jesus says in John 12, verse 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. A couple of years ago, I was walking through uh, Wahala in my uh, neighborhood in Clintonville, and I picked up a small acorn, and I marveled at how large trees come from this small acorn. And many other trees. In fact, one small acorn can fill an entire continent with trees. But in order for that to happen, that acorn must fall into the ground and die. There must be a decaying process. And so in the same way, God says that your life has infinitely more potential than an acorn. And that if you encounter suffering and you go through that decay process that God can multiply that life into many other people's lives. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, my wife and I buried her dad. And um, he, in his last moments, made peace with God, which was amazing. And even though he knew Christ only for a few months at the end of his life, it was amazing at his memorial service to see how his life was already impacting many other people's lives. His wife came to Christ just a month later. And now others are pondering whether or not there's life after death. You see, God can use the worst suffering and multiply that life in ways that we can't even imagine. Finally, he says, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit 
whom he has given us. I think when I first read this as a young Christian, that I equated this pouring out God's love into our hearts as sort of an inner subjective feeling that God loves us. And, I, and I've talked to many people who have experienced something like this in the midst of trial and suffering. But, you know, Paul is speaking more broadly to the experience of all Christians. He's not saying that only, um, you know, that all Christians are going to experience this incredible subjective feeling of God's love during times of suffering. Though I think it happens. I think that what he's talking about objectively is the fact that, first of all, God has given us the Holy Spirit as a way to show us that he hasn't abandoned us, that he loves us. The Bible tells us that when God comes into our life by indwelling us with the Holy Spirit, that actually we become his children. And so it's a way of communicating to us his love. But more than that, another way that God has demonstrated his love to us objectively is through the cross of Jesus Christ. In verses 6 through 8, Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want proof of God's love? Look to the cross. Look at what Jesus did for you. You know, some of you here this morning have never met the God of the universe. And what God wants to communicate to you is that he is eager to know you. But in order for you to be in a relationship with him, he needs to take care of that hostility, that enmity, that alienation that exists between you and him. But guess what? He's taking care of all of that through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the moment we receive the sacrifice that Jesus has paid on the cross, that at that moment we can reunite with him and experience the love that he offers. Fifth, Paul asserts we shall be saved through Christ. Notice, he says, we shall be saved through Christ. So he's not just talking about our status being sealed for salvation. Instead, he's talking about our future salvation. You know, we live in a t- at a time now in our lives where we experience some benefits of the glory of God. We get to experience transformation. We get to experience healing. We get to experience God's power and his glory. But this experience is incomplete. Have you ever felt at times in your Christian life that you are excited about God, that you're excited about your relationship with him and others, and yet something still seems missing? There's a sense of disappointment that we feel. You know what that is? It's that we live in this tension where On the one hand, we're already experiencing God's provision of redemption, but we're going to experience something 
more in the next. And so there's this already not yet tension in which we're living. And yet all of that's going to be resolved one day when we enter into God's eternal kingdom and we get to experience fully the redemption he wants to give us. Romans 8, verse 22 through 25 says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have been the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we have hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And so there's this eager expectation of the salvation that God will finally give to us when Jesus returns. Sixth and finally, we also rejoice with God. You know, we get to rejoice in God because of all that he's done for us. We get to rejoice in our sufferings. We get to rejoice in our future glory. We get to rejoice in our justification. And as a result, you really can summarize this entire section of scripture as a section of joy in the Christian life. You know, as Christians, we should be the most positive people on earth. How does that square with our reality? With the people that we encounter say, that person is just brimming with joy. Or would they say, what's wrong with him? What's his problem? We should have incredible hope because God has promised us redemption and future glory. And one day when we experience his glory, we will manifest his glory as filament puts off light. God says that we are going to bask in his glory. Okay, there you have Romans 5, 1 through 11. Lord, uh, we just thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. And uh, we're grateful that you condescended to come here on earth in the man Jesus Christ and to pay for our sins, and to procure for us this incredible justification that just changes our lives, and not only this life, but also will change our eternal lives. We eagerly await that, Lord. We want to be reformed. We want to experience your redemption. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray that we can Experience the benefits of our justification now as we pursue you. And for those of us, Lord, who have never met you personally, I pray that we would set aside our rebellion and make peace with you by receiving Jesus Christ. And we thank you for anyone who did that in his name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.